Hello and welcome to GovCast. My name is Amanda Ziedit, your host and reporter with Government CAO Media. Today I have Justin Herman joining me. He's the lead of the Emerging Citizen Technology Program Office for the General Services Administration's Technology Transformation Services. Thanks so much for joining us, Justin. Is this your first time on podcast? No, it's not. We have Digital Gov University at GSA to provide training, education, and insights to agencies. So I recorded a one-off podcast for that. So we brought on the person who runs social media for the CIA. Carolyn. And, you know, CIA on Twitter, it's obviously very popular, quite famous at the time, but people didn't kind of like know the background on it, how things come across and how things developed. And so we recorded a podcast and I remember we were like, okay, Carolyn, you're going to come in. We're going to do this 20 minute podcast. The podcast ended up running over an hour, just talking about like stories about how programs developed, how things came about. It's so easy to think in government that things are just bland and boring and, you know, behind this monolithic thing they call the government. But like one of the things that always keeps me passionate about this is the people and the fact of how much people care about it and people get excited about their work. So we recorded for over an hour just telling the background stories on how all this stuff came about. And we listened to it. And first off, it was the greatest podcast ever. (laughs) But two, we ended up actually saying we have to re-record this because her and I were just laughing so much and telling stories and bouncing back and forth. We're like, this might be a little too forward for government. (laughs) And so we actually ended up taking a break for two weeks, then re-recording it. And then it was funny because the stuff we talked about, again, wasn't known yet. So it got covered in the press and, you know, national outlets like BuzzFeed and and Quartz and everything like that. So then we're like, okay, how can we possibly top this? (laughs) The beautiful thing about Digital Gov University is they're always thinking and testing what are different ways we can get this information out to public servants. You've been with GSA for almost seven years now? Yes. So what excites you most about your job? I've obviously seen you in the speaking circuit a bunch of times, and you always seem so passionate about what you do. Yes. How do you keep that going? What's the most exciting part? Well, again, I think it's both the misconception that government is boring or government is anything like that, because again, people are the backbone of it. And these are people who every day come and they're passionate and they're excited and they can be fearful about something and they can be ambitious about something. And we get to help with that. I somehow lucked out and got the opportunity to go in and to be able to help people across agencies and across agency silos. And like that's been the crux of my job that has taken multiple different roles. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's finding out where those opportunities are and where are those things to elevate the federal workforce and elevate these programs that it is constantly new, it's constantly evolving, and it's constantly critical and vital. Seven years is a long time to never have had a day where I felt like I was coasting and that there wasn't something to win or lose every single day. When I got brought on to GSA seven years ago, it was specifically and they were like, listen, we need somebody to go in and there's this new thing, social media and social technologies that isn't very well understood, but it's proliferating in government. We need someone to really unite the tribes, bring people together and start having strategies and performance metrics and how it's tying into things like customer service, et cetera. And of course, it was a bit of a wild ride, but again, completely critical. So like it was our original emerging tech that I worked Mm -hmm. on. And a lot of times, and I I know I got this a couple of years ago when I started the emerging tech program, people are like, how did you jump from doing like social tech to all of a sudden talking about AI or talking about virtual reality or things like that? 
look at where social media and technology is today, the very companies like that were much smaller then and much more smaller to find like Facebook and Google and stuff. It's not that social media itself and the microcosm that it was stayed what it is. Mm -hmm. It's governed now by algorithms. All the emerging tech stuff that we're working on right now all came to be and came out of those particular fields. So for me, transitioning from that into full-scale emerging technology wasn't just like a choice because I didn't have something else to do. It was an absolute necessity to be able to prepare federal agencies for this and better understand it. And luckily, the methodology and the, the approach that we put together for this is also applicable to other things. Yeah, it's crazy because, like you said, seven years ago, your program office wasn't there. So how have you seen the administration evolve with these emerging technologies yeah. from social media to blockchain, AI, and all the things you cover now? Well, that's actually a bit of a misnomer. And I'd like to correct it again because actually it's kind of a challenge is anything that I've done, believe me, GSA had programs now. It might have been called something else, but it's always been the role of GSA to help and work with agencies on deployments and strategies and understand what's coming next and make sure that it's soundly operated. Even when I did it, there were people who had jobs similar in social media, et cetera. And obviously, we did not create any of these emerging technologies. So what's actually nice about it, and it's always humbling as well, is knowing this stuff and these programs and this passion and this interest existed well before I got here. When I go, whenever that is, it'll still be there. It's no one person. It's no one product. It's no one technology. It's the mission. And it's the mission because there's always the need for it. So I always look forward to and think about like when I look back on the career where it will be next. And also, you know, reaching out to people who did this before me. But it's so easy, you know, because obviously in your role, you see this. Everyone acts so excited all the time as if, boom, you know, artificial intelligence comes out of nowhere. <laughs> Government's been working on that for decades, right. you know, and, and especially so with my role, I get involved with something because there's a clear and compelling business case that's stated by our customer agencies. And one of the things that really impresses me about GSA, GSA runs and strives to run like a business. And it's hard in the best way possible, and it's freeing in the best way possible because it, it empowers us to be able to really look down, crunch the numbers, find out what the business cases are, what's the return on investment. Agencies are my partners. They're who I look up to. They're who I learn from. But they're also our customers. And that really comes uh, the service aspect of it, uh, of seeing what's going on, and that shapes every aspect of every activity we do. I'm curious as to how you got involved in all of this. Did you go to school for anything technology related, digital related? Fine art. Fine art. <laughs> no, no, no. There's actually, so looking back on the thread of my life, because actually it started well before the career, was a keen interest in technology and especially as it involves human interaction and communications. So I came from a small town in New Hampshire and my school was kindergarten through 12th grade in the same building. It represented multiple towns, and I had a graduating class of 23 people. Wow. This was a public school, <laughs> and I had horses. You um, owned horses? Yeah. Like you, okay, cool. Uh, my parents owned right, horses. Right, right. I mucked the stalls. Uh, <laughs> and in fact, I honestly, I, hate, I hated those horses <laughs> because I never got to fully enjoy them. But mm -hmm. for me, looking, there was a whole big world out there. So when the internet came to Alton School, 
when I say the internet came to school, I mean our English teacher was the only one who was allowed to use it at first. So I was interested. I served in the audiovisual department because I loved filming movies and doing tech stuff. So they asked me one of my projects was to build the school's first website. And what was funny is I still have this letter. I think my parents have the letter, and I have like a digital copy of it. And I don't directly remember this, but it was a letter from the superintendent of schools thanking me because evidently I went to the school board and put together a presentation theorizing that eventually there would be a cross-section of technology and the internet and communications that would change. And it kind of theorized and pretty accurately reading this, like the rise of social technologies Mm -hmm. and things like that. No, I did not have a girlfriend, clearly, (laughs) because if I was building websites and and, you know, You're presenting to, to the school board, I probably was not the coolest person you could imagine <laughs> at that time. But I'd like to think about things differently. You would be today, though. Yeah, today. But that this would, is back yeah. when nerds and geeks were nerds and right. geeks and stuff and not billionaires. And so, again, this was always my passion. It wasn't my job to do that. It's just the way I was thinking on it. And I really loved and I'd stay up late at nights. I had, you know, Photoshop and I would do design stuff. And I thought, you know, it'd be really great. I would go to school for a Bachelor of Fine Arts in like graphic design specifically because it's digital design. And then I got to work, you know, thinking I could help design websites. I can help do X, Y and Z. And so then I went to school in New Hampshire and became the first online editor of the school newspaper so in a way, I kind of grew up with the technology side by side, but mm-hmm. I never saw technologists as just computer science majors. Right. And like to this day, I'm not the greatest coder. In fact, I'm definitely not the greatest <laughs> coder. I used to do stuff like that, but obviously because I get to work with such fantastic people on it, you know, I stay in my lane. Mm-hmm. But again, that was always the passion. And eventually, so I switched over, started working more in international relations and studying that, seeing the bigger picture. And I always thought it was very clever if someone said, well, how did you go from fine art to international relations? And I'd be like, well, it's merely a bigger canvas. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, probably not the most popular guy <laughs> you ever met at the time. Public service for me has also always been like just something that I I believed in and I always wanted in my life. And so my dream was to join the Foreign Service and probably don't have the best temperament for it in (laughs) retrospect. But that's okay because I help them as I can today, which I'm always very proud of. So I joined Air Force ROTC my junior year. And in fact, I signed formally the documents and stuff one week before September 11th. Actually, to time this. So my thought was, you know, obviously passionate about public service, came from very small town, obviously. So I wanted to serve my time in the Air Force proudly and then transfer over and make a career going into the foreign service for it. And what was funny is, you know, you do these aptitude tests and everything like that. And they had me pegged real quickly, the Air Force, (laughs) on who I was and what I could do. In fact, I think like one of the aptitude tests specifically, they're like, you have an incredible outlier in verbal cognition. They're like, so you're going to become a public affairs officer. And so I became a public affairs officer and my job specifically would always be and they'd be like, what you excel at is taking very complex things and making them understandable to people, Mm -hmm. making it understandable to the public, making it understandable to senior leaders so then they can manage and operationalize it. 
I served my time in the Air Force and finished up in Space Command. So, but again, working with awesome. the first thing was like a test wing. Mm-hmm. Second thing was Space Command. And again, it was got in the habit and, and loving taking very complex things and breaking it down so we could do strategy on it. And so when I left the Air Force, I ended up not going into the State Department. I came to Washington, D.C. It was a while till I joined GSA, good five years, mm-hmm. spending time bouncing around. I spent a little time on the Hill, worked for a medical association, specifically on advocating for adoption of health information technology. <laughs> and so, again, we see a common yep. thread here. I think I'm being novel and like bouncing around and stuff. But in retrospect, I'm doing the same thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so by the time I started working for a consulting group specifically on government innovation programs and obviously very much so enjoyed that, but still was told at the time that things like digital technology and engagement and citizen engagement was not practical. The thread of my career is being told at times that it's not practical and it's inevitable. And we can see it's inevitable and it is, and it's all about ushering that in. So that's around the time then I left for GSA and it's been there ever since. And so, and again, it's, it's a role that I've always been comfortable in, in ushering what's next and breaking it down and making sure it's understandable so it can be managed, it can, mm-hmm. it can be tested. I not infrequently wish or wonder what it would be like to handle a subject matter that didn't get people so riled up all the time and just did something that was inevitable and mm-hmm. there and quiet and stuff. Because obviously, as you can imagine, essentially my whole, since I was 16 years old, have been focusing on helping people with what's next. Mm -hmm. And one of these days, I'd like an early retirement (laughs) where I could just be like, why don't I just help you with something you already understand and we'll manage that and be good. But I guess that's not in my DNA. Why does this topic rile everyone up so much? Emerging technologies? Is it because it's such a buzzword and people still don't get it? Or is everyone so eager to implement it into their systems to make work easier, but they just don't know how? I think a lot of it is the unknown. In my program right now is three parts. One, working on an individual basis with agencies on things that we might not generally mainstream know that they're working on yet. But it's there and we're finding patterns individual basis by consulting and advising agencies of something that's coming next. And we know they've started investing in it. We know they started piloting in it. But there might not be enough for that next level of all the mechanisms in government that obviously you need to make sure that all stakeholders know what's going on and are addressed. And then I'll create, once it's reached a tipping point and that business case is made amongst our customer agencies, then we'll create a quote-unquote government-wide program. And what that does, and that's usually what people see more of my job, even though that's later down the path compared to how I spend most of my time on an individual basis with agencies, is we'll create this government-wide program. And that's when it hits the mainstream and people, you know, and you'll see articles on it right, and, right. and panels and people are like, this is what's coming next around emerging tech. But one of the, the challenges is, again, if you don't know and you're not seeing under the hood, this stuff could seem like it's coming from left field. Mm-hmm. I'll have a project and I'll talk about it. And on one side, you'll have people being like, well, this is just impractical and radical and it's not actually happening yet and et cetera, et cetera. And then I'll go to the DOD and they'll be like, what took you so long? I feel like that happens with blockchain. Does that happen with blockchain? Do we want to get into this this early in the conversation? <laughs> okay, I just let's, feel like let's. That's one of the things that people think isn't 
going to work right now yeah. or isn't working and some people are already using it? I mean, agencies are testing it. Yes. So one of the, one of the challenges is expectations and settings. And, and I've learned a lot of lessons myself on this and, and through s- specific projects is people can get very confused sometimes because uh, they, they're reading about it. They're, they're not in these meetings. They're not seeing what's, on, what's under mm-hmm. the covers. So first off, I don't advocate or do anything or go and say, you should do this. Mm-hmm. You should do that. What I do with my program is say, this stuff is happening. It's not saying you should do X, Y, and Z, but what I believe is that we have a responsibility that if stuff is happening through government, that we open that up transparently and better talk about it, not just so agencies can advocate for it and say yes to it, which a lot of this stuff, they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. It's also so we're smarter and know when to say no and the reasons why. And that happened with blockchain. And, and it is happening is mm. that some people are very euphoric and excited about the possibilities of it. And on the other side, you'll have people who are like anything but blockchain. Never because it's not practical for these right. reasons. And what sometimes people miss is that we need both of those in the conversation. And the work of opening up and analyzing and finding out what's going on in government only serves one purpose, to make people smarter on what's really going on so we can say yes or no. But sometimes people feel that just by talking about it, it's an endorsement. And that is something to always to take into consideration. Like I'll go into programs of people like, oh, I heard, Justin, that you're the champion of this or you're the champion of that. I'm like, that's not (laughs) that's not how this works. Uh, And it's not how it should work. The type of methodology and programs that we'd want government to have is not be 10 years behind the curve on anything. Uh, But that being said, we are not situated the same way of businesses where we could accept the risk to rush ahead on things. Someone you know, who I always look up to says the same thing is, just because we're not ready to invest in it, it does not mean we don't have the responsibility to be knowledgeable about it. And so yes, like particular to blockchain, there are some programs that are using it. There are others that it doesn't make sense for them. This happens quite often. So somebody comes and then they're like, okay, very interested in blockchain. I've read about it. I heard X, Y, and Z. Let's have a meeting and discuss how we can use it. So what we'll do is we'll break down because ultimately, what do you really want to find out? That agency and that program is saying that they have a problem that they can't solve. Not only are they saying and identifying a problem that they can't solve, they're identifying that they're open to new ways of doing it. Because ultimately, again, merging tech, it's never about the tech. It's about how is government approaching its problems and how are we using all tools at our disposal to do it. My patron saint of automation, uh, Ed Burroughs at GSA, who's just such a fantastic leader in robotic process automation, the entire CFO office at GSA, just ever check out or just so mm-hmm. admirable in this, says when they break it down and they're looking at things to automate in the CFO office, there's three levels of what happens. First one, they're like, okay, this process could make sense for a robotic process automation. Second one is, yeah, this is a process that needs help, but we can actually repurpose existing technology to solve that problem. And the third one, the third phase, which is actually the most exciting, they look at it and they go, we don't need to automate this. This process is unnecessary. Hit the delete key. So obviously one of the emerging texts we talk about is robotic process automation, but it's not actually about just robotics. 
it's about process improvement itself. And if someone comes to the table and is excited about blockchain or they're excited about AI or they're excited about robotics, they should have somewhere to go and someone to talk to and work that out because what they're really saying is we have a problem that we can't solve. We want to, we're ready to help us find out what's going on and what those solutions are. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Like someone will come to the table and say, oh, I'm interested in, well, this happened. Someone comes um, from a particular program and it's like, we've heard you talk about, we've read about all this work in artificial intelligence. We're ready for it. We have all these problems that need solving and we're ready to do this. We've got the senior leadership support. You know what they're deploying soon instead? Because we directed them to RPA. They're happy because their problem is getting solved. And that's more of the atmosphere and the environment that we're trying to create is stop trying to prescribe the solutions and then fit agencies into that. But for us to see infinitely how large our toolbox is, and at the end of the day, it's how we approach our problems because you can delete the process, you can apply an emerging tech, you can use your existing tech but ultimately, you got to solve that problem. And that's what's so exciting about it. And I think that's something that, again, gets missed in this entire emerging tech space, because obviously there are partisans where people are like, we are an AI organization. We are a blockchain organization. We are an RPA organization providing these solutions. And we need more of people to step back and, again, focus specific on the problems mm -hmm. and get to see and pick and choose because at the end of the day and then they'll be like Justin I hope we didn't disappoint you because we ended up using our own existing tech and new ways to solve your problem and I'm like are you kidding me <laughs> that's I'm like what that, you're to do. that's that's why we're here mm -hmm. you know and then I get to like Mary Poppins like take my <laughs> umbrella and go to another place to be able to help like that and that's mm -hmm. kind of like the story that never gets told on this and also again why I get so infinitely more excited about this stuff is because we're in the business of helping people solve their problems, however that's done, not just pushing some individual technology or something like that. I think it cut you off, though, before you were talking about the three parts of the program and you didn't get to the third. So specifically, first thing, individual consultation with mm -hmm. agencies. That's what allows me to know and be able to spot trends and, and what's going on. But you might not read about it in an article. You might not see a government policy on it yet because, again, it's under the surface. Mm -hmm. And it might be at the proof of concept stage. It might be at the pilot stage. So not even using live data yet, but you know this is happening. Like currently I'm working on a research project specifically on mapping out all robotic process automation use in government. And I'm even surprised by the findings because I started by going to the companies and mm -hmm. being like, how many people have you actually deployed this with? Right. And we're looking at around three dozen agencies. And obviously, there's some that we know about, and people will bring up these core examples. But again, this is all happening and bubbling. So then mm -hmm. I put together a report on it, and then that'll lead me to work with people to be able to build some more of this government-wide stuff. Because ultimately, what does that do? That allows us to take in more data for decision-making and to be able to really test what are the use cases people are thinking about? What's all this stuff? And we try not to filter it too much. I want to know from the sublime to the ridiculous what people are thinking about on it because, again, there's ancillary benefits that come when we know that it isn't about the tech, it's about the problems that we're fixing. So then we get this government-wide program and then there's the other aspect of it that, again, tends to not get fully understood 
is then advising and letting people know who are core decision makers that will shape the future of this in government and let them know what's going on. And it's a unique role that we have because, again, we know what's under the hood, but ultimately we don't tell anybody what to do or not to do. If nothing else, it's almost like a think tank. But also it's so important then to advise people and let people know what's going on so Mm -hmm. they can create the structures and stuff that ultimately will be the sound and legitimate deployment when necessary of this tech. So that's in the three stages. But oftentimes with this program, people only see that middle layer and they don't know the black box that led to A, the creation of it. And then B, they don't see often what comes out of it because A, it's never our success. I might go out and do interviews on it, but you never see me like calling out particular agencies. It's their budget. It's their mission. It is their win. Mm -hmm. We are purely in a support role and shouldn't be out there in the forefront of it. And it's advising and making sure that the people who do have those roles and do have those capacity and the teeth to do something about it, they have the best information possible, whatever they do decide. Have you noticed government-wide any change in the culture and acceptance of these technologies and trying to use them? Because some people seem afraid to integrate AI into a process that already works. So how has that changed in the past few years? How have you seen that change? That dynamic has always existed and it Mm -hmm. always will exist. Before it was these particular emerging tech, it was they said the same thing about cloud. Before it was cloud, (laughs) they said the same thing about websites. It's always going to be that balance uh, Mm -hmm. of of what's new. And eventually, we're often fond of of discussing, is even the term AI is meaningless in many ways right now. It's a bucket. We put things into buckets to make them more digestible and understandable. But it's everywhere. It's going to be just synonymous with everything. And yeah, you call it like AI for marketing purposes. But these are unique to find things, threads that will run through everything. And it'll be something next. And you know what that next is probably going to be? Quantum. I was going to ask that. So you have like blockchain, AI, VR, AR, yeah. social tech? Yeah. So we still yeah. have this, this whole, <laughs> the whole approach that we put together for the emerging tech program was all designed and road tested for the social gov community. And then again, was able to spread that out. And technically, the approach could work for anything. And I think a huge win for government is anytime we can be more, not just collaborative, Because the whole thing is people say wisdom of the crowd, wisdom of the crowd. Well, it's very easy for the wisdom of the crowd to become the tyranny of the mob. And specifically, the approach we try to take is very directed and curated collaboration because just because you have another meeting doesn't mean you're getting more done. And in fact, it can be quite challenging that the more parties that you have and the more interests, the less productive things will be. So I think – Aside from the tech itself and the the programs, maybe the best product of the emerging tech program is the approach itself. Because again, it's replicable. It's 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 a focused way to both have collaboration but get stuff done because of it. And that constantly takes kicking the tires and you know atmospheric changes and things where people are feeling more or less collaborative. I mean, right now it it is difficult. Because these things are bigger and scarier to a lot of people. But I promise you, in a few years, it'll be something else. And everything else will be normalized. I will probably be working in that. We'll probably be back on this podcast. But hopefully, you know, I'll still be as passionate. And again, it takes that sometimes to be able to take a step back. Everything in the work that we did in SocialGov, which is SocialGov is like the name that we had for our social technologies communities Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. 
was the precursor to this. In fact, I think it uniquely honed us to be able to remove the hype mm -hmm. and to be able to distill down what's the practical, actionable um, stuff. So like you go to emerging.digital.gov, the website, mm -hmm. it's all emerging technologies for IT modernization. Right, right. You'll never see me theorizing like I did when I was 16 years old about like what's coming next. In life. There's that separation between what popularly is talked about of mm -hmm. where we are and what's actually happening underneath the hood. And I, I see that as one of my roles is to help bridge that gap mm -hmm. and be like, listen, yeah, there's a lot of talk and there's a lot of panels about the vision of AI and stuff like that. You know what I want to talk about right now? How is X, Y, and Z agency going to use it in FY19 mm -hmm. to improve their contact centers uh, in order to help their customer service, in order to arm their workforce with better analysis to help them do their jobs better? And that sometimes gets lost because, you know, what? it's not as exciting to talk about, but it is exciting for me. And it's excited for those program managers in mm -hmm. government because that's going to help them do their jobs better. It's why any of us joined public service at the end of the day is to make that difference. And there's so much that can be done right now. But I also heard you have other interests besides government and technology. <laughs> okay. All right, so, so some people, some people, so, some people think that I don't sleep <laughs> and I just do this constantly. And again, I, I, I keep up with the pace of it because I love it. And it is kind of like a lifestyle. That's great. Uh, with that being said, sometimes I've got to get out of town. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you did recently, right? Yeah, so I did a uh, 3,500-kilometer tuk-tuk race, which tuk-tuk is in India. And it's kind of like a motorcycle front with a golf cart back. And it's the most terrible and impractical thing to do across continent <laughs> uh, race on. I saw yours on Instagram. Yeah, I'm still kind of finishing up physical therapy months really? later on my arm for it. So it did take a toll. So it's the concept of direct experience, mm -hmm. which actually, again, this plays back to our work of direct experience mm -hmm. and, and customer service and everything of rather than just reading about things or doing things, putting yourselves in, in a situation where you have no choice but to directly experience it. Now, for me, it was going solo on a race across India at the end of monsoon season. <laughs> and I did it solo, too, going against 90 teams. It wasn't technically a race because if you finish it, you're the winner. Right. But there was 90 teams going, and I was the only solo racer. Every day, I hit a wall. Sometimes multiple times where I'm like, there's no way I can do this. Mm -hmm. And then you take a deep breath and you're like, if I don't solve this, I'm not going to move. And if I don't move, I don't move because there was only a start location and an end location, 3,500 kilometers apart. There was no check-ins. There was wow. nothing like that. You had to find your own way. And for me, this is therapy <laughs> like, because it's ultimately, again, a daily problem-solving exercise. Mm -hmm. And then when you get out of it, it changes your whole perspective of how you react to pressure, mm -hmm. how you react to stress. And oh, yeah. so for me, who just like I see everything as puzzle pieces that just need to find a match and be put together, it, it was a very important experience to do that. It never gets strange enough for me <laughs> in life. I, I want challenges. No, um, yeah, that's really amazing. Did you have to find places to sleep? You know, did you have to like all that on your own? Like, yeah. But also what was lucky uh, is because, again, and I, I don't speak the languages there either, right. is so you'd run in and you would meet people. Mm -hmm. And 
it would lead to the absolute most life-changing in some way moments of clarity where you see yourself differently. And again, it's like I came back from this and I went back to the office and there were so many things that like were weighing on me and stuff that were just alleviated because then I had a better understanding of how I was reacting to things and how I was perceiving things. And I always say that travel is like the cure to everything. Mm -hmm. And people oftentimes we get so busy in life that we overlook it and then we get into like a bubble and our perceptions and everything are shaped by that bubble. And the only way to do it is to get out of that bubble. If I had just gone as a tourist, I would not have had anywhere near the same experience. This oh, scarf that I'm from... wearing is my turban that I had that's in cool. Rajasthan. So I started in the desert uh, near the border of Pakistan, went down, oh. went through Mumbai, you know, did Bombay the hard way. I think that's part of why my like arms screwed up right now because traffic in Mumbai is a problem. Really? Um, that went down through like uh, jungle plains, mountains, jungle mountains. And so this one, when I was in the desert, this was my turban. Mm -hmm. And I actually wear it as a scarf now. So every once in a while, if I like get caught up in something, I'll, I'll actually just pause and look at it and remember Wonder. that this too shall pass mm -hmm. and that there's a world out there. I'm sure seeing how other people solve these problems kind of eye-opening to how we can solve problems here too. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, Americans doing as teams and the other 89. Oh, it was mostly, yeah. Like I would be going and like I remember I was broken down and this was almost, so this was two weeks by the way. Okay, right. Two mm -hmm. weeks of daily and I had to drive then 10 hours a day right. and there were times that I would be broken down. I'm not a mechanic. Now I've learned, I've learned a lot about this mm -hmm. stuff, but New Zealanders like pass by <laughs> and they go and the guy just pops open the back of my tuk-tuk, starts working on it. I'm like, buddy, don't go back there because every time the mechanic goes back there, it's like medieval <laughs> doctors. You go to solve one problem and there's three other things that you cause that are going to kill me. Right, right. And he goes, I fix yachts for a living. And I'm like, he goes and just takes apart my carburetor, everything, slaps it together, wow. thing purred like a kitten after that. And so, like, I remember, like, this one particular time, I had to, you know, by myself, mm -hmm. I was broken down. I had to push this thing myself for like a half a kilometer into this village, swarmed with people. And no one spoke my language, of course, right. you know, and I had my stuff. If I left the tuk-tuk, all of my stuff could get taken. Right, and I think right. if I was in New York or something like that, oh, I'd yeah. be like, all my stuff is going to be taken. <laughs> and so I've got like 30 people surrounding because it's very, it's people's minds are blown that, mm -hmm. an, you know, an Englishman is, <laughs> is driving a tuk-tuk and, and stuff. And so I have a photo of the fuel filter and I'm like, new, new, pointing at it. Mm -hmm. Eventually, a guy comes up on a motorcycle and just points to the back of it. So I'm like, if I walk away, like, I don't even know what this guy's talking about. Mm. I got to assume maybe he's saying go with him. Right. But if I leave, all my stuff is going to be stolen. Right. So I'm like under severe pressure. And then I was like, if I don't do this, nothing will change. And if mm. nothing will change, I won't move forward. So I like, took a deep breath, had my, I called it the Holy of Holies. It was my little satchel around my neck mm. with my passport uh, and my IDs. Right, and everything you need. And I left everything else behind and just got on the back of the motorcycle without a word exchanged and took off. And we went village to village. And I spent a little bit of time just, I think, showing me off, like driving me like, look, I got a stranger <laughs> in, the, in the back of the motorcycle. But eventually we got to a mechanic and I go back. 
not only, I mean, all the stuff is that people of India are some of the most generous, mm -hmm. just amazing people. And again, it's things that just change because I wouldn't have had that trust even in D.C. And there you see different, just different ways and different approaches of everything. And they fixed me. I was on my way. They fed me. It was just amazing. And that was like one example where I had come to a stop and I'm like, this problem can't be solved. And then you realize, yes, it can. The only blockage to it is how I'm perceiving it. It's amazing. Like When I did the India trip, how many people across government were supportive or they've done stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's always one of the misconceptions that this government is just like some bureaucracy of people languishing away <laughs> and stuff. Right. When you go underneath and you're working with these public servants, they're the most inspiring and passionate people. And we all have our hearts broken sometimes. Like no one's who's ever really cared about something have proposed it and everything works out great. You get shut down. It's the system, the bureaucracy, but we keep on going at it. Uh, and so that's just always just such an inspiration. So well, you're a musician too, though, right? Two things that are important to me, well, three. So travel, uh, one of them's cooking. So I started working in restaurants when I was 13. And then, I mean, by the time I was in uh, college, I was working in a restaurant for a chef who's now been multiple times a James Beard finalist. Mm -hmm. And I originally almost went into professional cooking. I had to make a choice when I was in college. They were like, listen, we'd like you to stop going to school <laughs> and go to the culinary academy and stuff and become, you know, chefs wow. like us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I wasn't ready for that. But I have, I hope, celebrated dinner parties and barbecues. <laughs> but that's one of the things is to be able to cook for people. And also, I grew up, started in fourth grade playing trumpet. And uh, and music and one of my big passions growing up is jazz music, mm -hmm. so specifically got into like improvisational jazz and stuff at a young age mm -hmm. and uh, was very into that. And so I actually played in a band in D.C., which eventually I got put out of. So it's a sad <laughs> if, if we want to talk about that for creative. They voted you off the island. <laughs> yeah, they voted me off the island for, you know, we'll say creative differences. Mm -hmm. But what was special, because I hadn't played trumpet in 13 years. And then they, there was this funk band mm -hmm. and the people in it are just wonderful. And. You know, we would play in D.C. and we'd play like Rock and Roll Hotel once a month. Mm -hmm. And we were voted uh, D.C.'s favorite local band and got to oh. headline 930 Club That's awesome. uh, on it. It's just such an outlet and a creative outlet. But like things like playing music, especially like horn instruments, you're either all in it mm -hmm. because it takes practice and right. you have to hone your chops and stuff like that. And so it's hard to do and dedicate to just like part time. And so it's always that is finding these creative outlets that, again, directly relate to everything else. But also, can you give your time to it? And do you want to? Because then if not, no one works together well in that atmosphere. Mm -hmm. I think Part of my collaborative outlook is, is probably shaped by two things. One, growing up working in restaurants and kitchens. And any great life experience <laughs> starts with working in the kitchen <laughs> of a restaurant because it is tense, it is high pressure, and it is 100% collaborative. I mean, it is a cauldron. The other thing that I did in college, and I talked about working the online thing, is that I always worked in newsrooms mm -hmm. in college. I was editor-in-chief of the university magazine. I wrote in multiple of the newspapers. And so, in a way, like the two formative experiences that I had at work were working in newsrooms and running newsrooms, which is high 
pressure. Yeah, high stress, high pressure. High, high stress, highly collaborative, breaking mm-hmm. things down. Two is restaurants. A chef will throw a plate at you <laughs> if things go wrong. So sometimes, you know, you work in technology now. I'm sure people, like I sit next to Code.gov at, mm-hmm. at GSA, who is this wonderful team, open source mm-hmm. advocates and platform for government. I'm sure they wish I would shut the heck up sometimes <laughs> because I'm always swinging around and talking to people and like bouncing You're ideas social, across yeah. and people are like just leave me alone <laughs> I'm, tr- I'm trying to code right now so it's both been that kind of those formative things working in newsrooms and kitchens really shaped how I approach things today for the better and for the worse I'm curious as to what's next for you if you think you'll always be, you know, trying to help government agencies fix their problems, whether it be by technology or collaboration or what have you, or if you have other goals in mind, if you in 10, 20 years hope to be doing something else. I like this question, and I, and I like Good. the fact awesome. that we're going to be ending with it, and because it also reflects the approach that we have with the program. Mm-hmm. And if you go to emerging.digital.gov, you'll see that we spend every day a blend. It's not just public service as it relates to a government agency who are our customers and what Mm -hmm. we need. But in order to best service them, also have to have the direct work with businesses, academic researchers. The only way that the government is going to play its natural role as the leader of this stuff is not just to talk to ourselves, but to have better public-private partnerships and better relationships with all stakeholders. So my career is public service. That doesn't just mean serving in one particular agency or something like that. So down there, when we're talking 10 to 20 years or or something like that is, I don't believe that you just serve the American people by being in one particular branch of government Mm -hmm. either. People work in companies and businesses. The businesses who service government can be just as important because government program managers can't do their job without the program, the services, the resources that come from the private sector. And the people doing research in academia, they're the ones who are fueling and giving us information and reports on what we need. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about public service, it could be done in so many different ways, and it should be. And that, for me, again, is exciting. It's empowering. And it's the same way that in emerging tech, it's not just about one particular technology. It's about solving the problem. And ultimately, I know, I don't hope, I know that whatever comes forward will be helping solving the problems that we have in achieving the full potential of our public services. And I'm just thankful beyond words that I've been able to do it again from such an agency like GSA Mm -hmm. and under our leadership that are so well situated to be able to play that role and empower us to do so. This has been an awesome conversation, Justin. How can people follow you, get in touch with you if they want to know more about the program or your travels? Well, one of the things is just go to emerging.digital.gov, and that's the site that we have. Uh, And again, just remember that there's so much more going on under the hood. So if you ever have any questions or anything like that, believe me, just reach out Mm -hmm. because no matter what your, your, your challenge is or your idea, your opportunity, I promise you there's somebody and many people in government who have the same problem, same challenge, same opportunity, and same passion. And we want to put the pieces of the puzzle together and ultimately solve that problem. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. This week's episode is supported by Lumina. 
Lumina's mission is to use AI systems to protect the world. To learn more about Lumina, visit its website at luminaanalytics.com. So what an inspiring conversation with Justin. It's so interesting to hear about how social technology in some form has really followed him throughout his childhood, his high school experiences and career, and you know how it still plays a role in what he does at GSA with the Emerging Citizens Technology Office. And I think it's always so cool to learn how outside passions influence someone's day to day, especially people in government, when you don't really think about what they do outside of government. You know, his rickshaw run story in India, how that changed his perspective on problem solving and his mantra of if you're not moving, you're just not moving. It's really something I think everyone can learn from and take with them in what they do at work. I'm really excited to see what challenge Justin takes on next in his travels and, of course, where GSA progresses with the technology transformation services in the future. Thank you again for joining me. I'm Amanda Ziede with Government CIO Media, and this is GovCast. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media. It's produced and edited by Rob Ford. Our theme music is provided by Big Hoax. Our executive producer is Michael Hoffman. If you're interested in sponsoring GovCast, you can email Andy Andrews at randrews at governmentcio.com. Mm-hmm.